Singularity. My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in two ways. Number one is you can go and leave a brief review on iTunes. Or number two is by becoming a patron via patreon.com forward slash singularity FM. Today, my guest on my show is arguably the most influential living philosopher of our day, uh, which is why Time magazine called him one of the top 100 most influential people in the world. Furthermore, his book on animal liberation started the animal rights movement, arguably, and his textbook on ethics is pretty much the standard philosophy text for first-year students uh, uh, in philosophy across the world, and basically one of my first texts uh, in philosophy when I had to read when I was undergraduate. So, Peter Singer, thank you so very much for joining us on Singularity FM today. I'm happy to be with you. Fantastic. So, Peter, I used sort of the standard introduction here that I took from your bio, but if I were to ask you to introduce yourself to a person who has never heard of you before, how would you do that yourself in one or two sentences? Uh, I'm a professor of philosophy working in ethics and particularly working in practical ethics, that is, the areas of ethics that most connect with our lives. And I'm probably best known for working in two areas. One is about the ethics of how we treat animals, uh, which I argue the way we regard animals is not morally defensible. And secondly, for ethical issues relating to what we in the affluent countries ought to be doing to help people in extreme poverty elsewhere in the world. Fantastic. So um, would you say that you're... If you have, if I force you to congest that into shorter, even would you say that you are an ethical philosopher? Is that Peter Singer? Sure. Uh, yes, that's what I do. Okay, so let's define then what is ethics and what is philosophy. Okay, well, philosophy is the broader category, so let's start with that. Um, <clears throat> philosophy is trying to think about some of the deepest problems that uh, we can and. Uh, Although philosophy used to be very broad and include things like what we now call physics, which was known as natural philosophy, uh, the way the term is used now, anything that you can do experimental science towards is sort of hived off from philosophy, it's separate. So, so philosophy is the remaining problems that you can't solve by experiments or other kinds of empirical research. Within that area of philosophy, Ethics is the area that uh, asks the question, uh, what ought we to do? What is uh, right and what is wrong in our acts? How ought we to live? Uh, that's an ancient part of philosophy, a very central part of philosophy. Uh, in the Western tradition, it goes back to Socrates and Plato who asked those questions. Fantastic. And of course, my blogging name is Socrates, so I have a uh, sort of a tremendous soft spot for the guy. And of course, just for the record, it's not a name I gave myself. It's other people gave that to me many times ago when I was in the army. But that's a whole other story. Um, and just a few questions for fun. I know you're an animal person and an animal lover, but are you a dog? No, sorry, that's not correct. Um, I'm not an animal lover. 
I do not describe myself as an animal lover. I have no companion animals, and I'm not particularly interested in having companion animals. And that's an important that's an important point because a lot of people think, um, oh well, you know, some people love animals, and they think we shouldn't be cruel to them or mistreat them. Um, but I don't particularly love animals, so why shouldn't I eat them? Um, and that's, you know, to me, it's an ethical question. It has nothing to do with whether you love animals or not. Um, you know, any more than uh, when people were marching for civil rights of African Americans in the South, uh, they were the, the white racists uh, abused them as nigger lovers, if I may use that word in quotes. Um, and of course, that was a, a, an insult, not only that it used that derogatory term, but also that it suggested that if you didn't have some kind of love for African-Americans, you wouldn't be marching for their rights. Uh, and I think it's exactly the same mistake to think that someone who is concerned about animals and doesn't want to support the cruelties we inflict on them in the modern intensive farming uh, is therefore has, has to be an animal lover. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And that's exactly the reason why I asked you about this, because I wanted to ask you if you have any pets or any animals and so you kind of preempted my follow-up question which is fantastic okay so another interesting uh, personal question i want to ask you is are you vegetarian or are you vegan well um i'm mostly vegan but um i'm not absolutely strict about that and uh you know it's not to me like a religion that uh, somehow it's a terrible sin if some uh, animal product passes my lips um I, and that's, you know, that goes back to something we haven't talked about yet, but that is related to my being an ethical philosopher. My view of ethics is that uh, what we really ought to focus on is the consequences of our actions. Uh, so it's not like a matter of obeying strict rules. It's a matter of saying, what effect am I having on the world? And so I'm, I, I don't eat animals because I don't want to support the uh, abuse of animals, the exploitation of animals that uh, goes into their commercial production. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if it's not easy for me to avoid all animal products, if I'm traveling somewhere and uh, there's not much vegan food around, but uh, there's vegetarian food around, you know, that has some dairy or egg in it, um, I don't think it's a terrible thing uh, to eat that. So um, that's why... I sometimes call myself a flexible vegan. Um, I'm mostly vegan, but I'm prepared to be flexible about it in circumstances where I, I think it's not a big deal. Very interesting. So I'm going to come back uh, later to a little bit to, to that point. Um, meanwhile, what's your favorite food then? Oh, I have lots of favorite foods. I'm uh, keen on a whole lot of uh, fruits. I enjoy you know, getting a wide range of fruits. And of course, we can now get a much wider range, particularly with uh, a lot of ethnic communities that have uh, introduced different uh, tropical fruits and other fruits into uh, diet. Um, but I, I like um, food from a range of different cuisines. I like uh, spicy uh, Asian food, like uh, Korean food and uh, Chinese food. And a lot of those dishes can be cooked with without meat uh, using tofu or using uh, eggplants or green vegetables. Um, so there's a, a lot of that. Um, some Indian food, of course, has quite a lot of vegan and vegetarian dishes. Yeah, I watched you on YouTube uh, showing how to cook dao one. 
Ah, uh, yes, that's quite an old video now. But yes, I, I did do that. I know it's, it's still floating around the internet somewhere. Yeah. Right. The internet never forgets, of course. So w since you mentioned that um, you're not like obsessive uh, vegan, but you're mostly vegan with some small exceptions when you travel and stuff, what's your attitude towards... You see, most a large part of my audience is transhumanists. And of course, uh, 3D printed meat is one of the things that we have discussed on my show before. So what's your attitude towards that? Oh, I think that would be fine if we could produce um, uh, meat uh, without going through sentient animals. Um, that would avoid the whole problem of uh, the suffering that uh, animal exploitation causes. And uh, it would also greatly reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of meat. So it would be beneficial in that way. So, yeah, I, I, I hope that that comes sooner rather than later. Would you be willing to try that or, or maybe eat that? Yeah, sure. I have no problems with, with that at all. Um, it's not sort of the, the biochemical substance meat that is the problem. It's uh, the consequences of uh, meat production through whole animals um, that I'm troubled about. It's, you know, similarly, I, if I sort of came across a, uh, a deer that had been freshly killed uh, on the road or something like that, I would have uh, no objection to eating that. I mean, I don't particularly <laughs> want to go and start carving up a deer and, and so on, but but if, if somebody else were to do it for me and uh, and offer me a piece of it, I, I would have no objection to, to that. It's uh, Again, it's, it's the consequences of, of what you're doing, what you're supporting, that is really important. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Do you own a car? Um, so, uh, I'm talking to you from Australia now where I spend half of each year and, uh, we do have a car here that we share with our, our family when we're not around because in, in Melbourne, it's, it's very hard to get around without it. But, but when I'm in the United States at Princeton, I, I don't have a car. Um, it's easier, easier to manage there. I understand. Uh, who was your greatest mentor or inspiration? Oh, um, so in terms of actual personal mentors, I guess I had some teachers of philosophy. Uh, one of them at the University of Melbourne is a philosopher not very well known called H.J. McCloskey. Um, and it's interesting because his, his ethical position was, was completely different from mine um, and rather opposed to the utilitarian view that I follow. Uh, but, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize that philosophers appreciate good arguments, whether they share the conclusions or not. And so he was very supportive of my career in philosophy, even though he disagreed with the conclusions that I was coming to. Um, and that was an important influence. Also, uh, then I went to Oxford to do my graduate work and Professor R.M. Hare uh, was my supervisor there, a very famous philosopher at the time. And he was, I found, an, an excellent uh, teacher. So um, so those have been mentors. Um, Josh, there's a lot of other uh, inspirations, I suppose, who uh, go back a lot further and Socrates could be one of them in fact uh, in terms of you know asking questions asking awkward questions in society um, and uh, probing people about whether they really understand uh, ethics and justice and those ideas um, that's an inspiration and being willing to pay the price uh, well for um, I mean, I hope I don't have to face that choice. Let me just say that. <laughs> I hope none of us has to. Yeah, of course. Um, what's your greatest ethical failure, be, be it personally or as a philosopher, or if you can make that 
distinction at all. You know, I, as I said, one of the issues that I've written at length about is what we ought to be doing to help people in extreme poverty. Um, and I argue that we all ought to be giving significant portions of our income to effective organizations that are making a, a real difference to the lives of people in extreme poverty. Um, and I do that. I give away about a third of, of what I earn, but I, I could give away more. And I think it's a failure in a sense that I don't give away more, that um, um, I'm not as uh, purely altruistic as I think ideally I should be. Uh, so you're giving away 30% and, and yet you think you can do more than that. Yes, I can. Now, of course, you know, that's because I'm reasonably comfortably off. Um, I, I earn quite well. Um, if I was uh, earning much less, then um, maybe 10% would be all I could manage if that. But um, yeah, my income level, I think I, I could do better. And I know people who do do better. So um, it's possible. I can't, uh, I can't deny that it's possible. Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, by the way, just out of curiosity, one question to indulge myself. Uh, you said that you've actually listened to some of my past podcast episodes uh, and they were like over two hours, which is why you weren't interested originally to come to my show. And I told you I'm going to make an exception for you, of course, and take any time that you're willing to, to give me. But which ones did you listen to and what did you think if you could share that? Uh, I don't really remember exactly which ones I, I listened to. I was really looking at you know what you were doing, the kinds of things that you were doing. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think the whole transhumanist sort of issue that you do discuss is is really interesting, um, and I think I, I I tend to agree with the view that um, you know we we're in some way too committed to uh, our nature as we are. We have this um, kind of status quo bias to thinking we don't want to change human nature, um, and yet uh, it's not clear to me why we should think that somehow everything's fine as we are you know obviously there's there's some there's some risk in 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 change and the unknown but but equally um evolution has not produced uh perfectly desirable beings who get along and create an ideal world so um i'm sympathetic to that perspective that's fantastic and of course we're going to come back to that but i just want to put a, a couple more questions just to sort of give people a taste or a sense of who you are and what you are all about before we get into the serious part of our discussion here in a second so um what's your biggest dream what's peter singer's biggest dream well um I would like to see a world without suffering, I suppose, or you know, with minimal suffering only, if uh, that could be achieved. And uh, uh, although I don't, uh, I don't really expect to see that. Um, there are things that could happen. Um, you've talked already about producing meat through three D printing or in vitro um, methods. Um, so if we could really replace uh, meat from sentient animals with um, uh, other products, you know, plant-based products or um, um, meat that was developed synthetically either, it doesn't really matter, um, that would save such an enormous amount of suffering that we're inflicting uh, and also help to cope with climate change. But um, so that would be a, a dream that I would love to see realized. So, but how would you know, let's say somehow it's happening or it happens, how would you know other than, let's say, the reality of cheap 3D printed meat that would be, let's say, many times cheaper than farmed meat. So that's one fantastic benchmark. 
what else would have to be present for that dream to be a reality? Uh, well, that, that 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 would have to replace the animals who are currently being reared, and so then we would we would see that those factory farms went out of business. You know, they were sort of just relics standing empty in, in where they are. That. Uh, there would then be an uh, immensely uh, amount of grain that would be saved because it's incredibly wasteful producing grain and feeding it to uh, these animals. Um, so we would have a well, we would have more food, or if we didn't have markets for all of that grain, we would then allow more land to revert to wildlife and to nature. Uh, so I think that we would we would see a dramatic transformation of uh, a lot of the countryside in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And then the flip side of that coin, what's your biggest fear then? Uh, probably my biggest fear at the moment is is climate change, that we are not getting hold of that. We are not reducing our greenhouse gases uh, sufficiently quickly to avoid uh, really grave risk of catastrophic changes to our climate. Um, you know, we're already seeing changes. Uh, they're not yet at the catastrophic level, but they're certainly at the worrying level for uh, many people who's, where rainfall patterns are changing, for example, or a uh, number of, of days of extremely high temperatures is increasing. So um, this is a real worry. I think that this is going to prove too difficult a problem for humans to, to handle. Mm-hmm. You have people like Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Steve Wozniak, and even Dr. Stephen Hawking, for example, who have warned that artificial intelligence may actually turn out to be the end of the human race. And that, you know, Elon Musk has called that like summoning the demon. Others have has said that it may be the end of the world and stuff like that. How does this kind of fear or concern figure out in your sort of rankings of things we should be concerned about? Well, to me, it's it's nowhere near as immediate as the questions of climate change, which I think we need to do something about now. Um, I'm I'm not an expert on AI, but from my reading, we're still quite a long way off um, of the prospect of of AI actually being smart enough to take us over um, in some way. Sorry, what what do you mean when you say a long way off? Like fifty, hundred, two hundred years, or twenty years? Uh, not 20, somewhere in that 50 to 100 range, perhaps, um, which I think still gives us time to think about um, that issue. Um, and let me just say one other thing that's relevant to the values you hear. I mean, we were just saying that the transhumanist perspective says that, you know, human nature is not necessarily perfect or the best best form of existence either. So when people say this could mean the end of the human species, if what they're talking about is the replacement of the human species by some form of conscious artificial intelligence that actually can handle the world a lot better than we can, maybe can also be happier than we are and avoid the suffering that we experience, um, then uh, I'd like to ask the question whether that would be a bad thing. Um, you know, so I, I would be very concerned if if all consciousness ceased to exist and there was no value in the world through conscious beings enjoying their lives and um, you know, doing very, living rich and fulfilling and rewarding lives. But I don't particularly care whether those conscious beings are members of the species Homo sapien um, or even whether they're carbon-based life forms. Um, it's the, 
it's the consciousness that's important, not the chemistry or the biology. Uh, would you be concerned, though, about our species' survival or of some kind of continuity between the human species and the, the let's say, maybe the transhuman species that it may evolve into? Um, well, I would be... I would be concerned if there was no continuity, I suppose, because Let then me the give various you a hypothetical. Let's say we develop artificial general intelligence and it reads practical ethics by Professor Peter Singer and does all kinds of incredible calculations and decides that to maximize the greatest level of happiness and minimize the, the least amount of suffering on our planet Earth, we it has to exterminate the human race. <laughs> Then, are we to... Yeah, um, you know, if we got those calculations right, if we're assuming that that was, in fact, uh, the best thing in the long run um, for everyone, um, I find it a little hard to believe that uh, it would be, but, you know, hypothetically, we just assume... It's, it's not completely impossible. I mean, I don't know why, if, you know, if this is such a super-intelligent uh, uh, entity couldn't, couldn't find a solution that could say, you know, well... Uh, the human race can continue, but we're going to modify it so that it avoids some of the problems that it's creating. Well, just like you say in effective altruism that, let's say, a dollar spent in Asia or in Africa is a lot better spent because it goes a lot further away than a dollar spent, let's say, in Canada or in the United States, they would say, well, if we put all those effort in all those other species... Uh, as opposed to the humans, the the planet would be much better off because, look, they've run the planet f for the last, let's say, a few thousand years and it's pretty much a disaster. Species extinction, environmental collapse, you know, oceans are acidification, pollution with plastic materials, climate change, you name it, right? The risk of constant nuclear, uh, you know, confrontation between nuclear-armed uh, powers so they haven't done very good job and it's just not worth worthy <laughs> let's say effective altruism from the planetary point of view would mean that just like you favor investing in in the third world uh, or or helping the third world causes rather than let's say the, the people who need it in canada and in the u.s they say likewise only with other species against humanity Yeah, okay. Well, let's just assume that that is the case. As I say, I find it not that easy to uh, believe that, that that would be the case. But but if it is, then okay. I mean, if they've got the calculations right, and that is the better outcome, um, as I said, I'm not, I'm not wedded to the existence of any particular species. So would you resist any such uh, uh, sort of solution? And would it be ethically wrong to resist? I think it probably would be ethically wrong to resist it. Yes, I mean, you know, it, 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 in a sense, you could say it would be natural to resist it, but um, but uh, I don't think we should, you know, just just as if if my country um, were uh, unjustly uh, an unjust aggressor against other countries, and those other countries said, um, "Look, uh, we have to go to war against your country because you're unjustly attacking other countries and causing a lot of problems in your part of the world." Um, now, then there would be a, a strong movement, uh, so let's say here, let's say it's Australia where I am, strong movement to say, you know, all Australians join the struggle against our enemies, etc. Um, but I think that would be wrong. I think uh, Australians ought to resist that if they recognize that it's their country that has been the unjust aggressor. They ought not to 
rally around the Australian flag and defend it. So similarly, I think if in fact this um, superintelligence uh, correctly judged that we humans are the cause of so much suffering in the world and so much wrongdoing um, and uh, need to be exterminated, I think it would be a mistake to say, well, I'm human, so somehow I have to defend all human beings. <laughs> so we just walk to the slaughter voluntarily? Uh, if, in fact, that is the correct solution to all the problems, yes, that's right. As I said, this is hypothetical. I don't, I don't believe that that would be the case, but uh, if you ask me to assume that it is, then yes, we ought to, we ought to get rid of ourselves. We ought to uh, take, take the drugs. You know, presumably these kind, benevolent superintelligence would, would offer us some uh, peaceful pill that we can take so that we just you know, gently slip into uh, death and, and wipe ourselves out. And then I think we should do that. You know, I've been vegan now for a little over two years, and I published an article which kind of was very controversial, and a lot of people got upset at me why I went vegan uh, some time ago, and I gave about half a dozen reasons for being vegan. And about number five or six uh, was the following argument that, you know, imagine that we have artificial intelligence who is much, much smarter than us and comes up with this thing called not humanism but AIism which is based entirely on speciesism, AIism in this case, and favors their own species um, and measures everything in rationality or ability to reason. And just like we justify the killing of uh, 70 billion animals and one to three trillion fish today based on the fact that we are smarter than them or, or they're not members of our species or something like that, they do likewise. And so... I say that one way to sort of maybe diminish that possibility, in other words, I put forward a claim that one of the last reasons why I went vegan was to create a precedent how a smarter species ought to treat all the other lesser, less smart species around it as an end in themselves, not as a means to an end, so that we have a hopefully good precedent so that when other species are smarter than us, we can hopefully get treated likewise. Do you think that makes sense at all? Would you accept that argument? Is it flawed? So what I accept is the idea that a useful way of looking at our situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis non human animals is to imagine that there is uh, an alien, more intelligent uh, species that uh, has power over us and um, treats us in the way that we treat non-human animals. I think uh, as a kind of a, a thought experiment, um, what you're suggesting there is quite illuminating. Um, do I think that uh, in practice, the fact that we were not treating animals the way we do would make it less likely that this superior species would uh, treat us as we treat animals? Yeah, look, you know, maybe there's something in that. I mean, they might, they might say, "Oh well, look, they're they're compassionate to the less rational, less intelligent beings under their power, so um, they deserve to be treated uh, in the same way by us as they treat other animals." Um, At least they can't say, "Look, we do the same that you do to the others." To others. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. They, that's right. We're so they don't have that excuse for um, for for mistreating us and uh yeah that uh that's possible great uh someone criticized me 
uh, a few weeks ago. Actually, that's a that's happened several times about the difference between ethics and morality, according to them. Would you say that, in your view, as an ethical philosopher, there is actually a difficult dif difference between ethics and morality? No, I, I don't think there is. You know, but this is a linguistic question, and I think usage has changed uh, over the past uh, century or, or more. Uh, it used to be that morality was what sort of ordinary people do, what they talk about to right and wrong, and ethics referred to a more uh, philosophical or scientific reflection on uh, basic principles that might guide our conduct. Uh, and you can find that in distinction in 19th century texts, for example, um, and some, you know, early in the first half of the 20th century, maybe too. But I think gradually the meaning of the term ethics has broadened um, and people now use it pretty much interchangeably with morality. So um, I don't think there's much point in trying to draw a difference anymore. Yeah, and in the beginning of your book, uh, your textbook on practical ethics, you basically say that you're going to use the two terms interchangeably. So basically, as far as you're concerned, they're synonyms. And and that's that's kind of like my position too. Um, so, what other are the big issues other that humanity is facing today, other than let's say climate change, which you say is our top priority, and you didn't think that AI is a top priority? What other would be the top priorities? Uh, well, I think uh, global poverty is a priority. Um, it's, it's it's declining, fortunately, but um, on the there's still more than 10% of the world's population, more about maybe 750 million people living in extreme poverty that the World Bank defines as uh, around $2 a day. Um, that's a very minimal way of living. And obviously, there is uh, a lot of hardship that people have to endure. Um, many things that we can assist them with to get out of poverty and have better lives. And I think that that's a major issue that we ought to be doing something about. Um, so uh, I do see that as a problem. Um, I think there are also uh, potential problems about uh, population growth in some parts of the world, um, particularly so the poorest countries of the world have the highest population growth, and that doesn't seem to be helpful in terms of um, overcoming poverty. So. Yeah, you talk about Nigeria, for example, in your book, and what was the other country you gave as example? Senegal, was it, or what was it? Uh, no, and Niger as well um, has a very, I think, the fastest growing population or the highest fertility rate, uh, number of typical number of children born per woman, is in Niger, which is an even uh, you know poorer country than Nigeria, um, and. Uh, so, you know, that's that's a, a worry um, in terms of helping them to overcome poverty and helping to get out of uh, internal strife. And it's also, Nigeria is likely to be quite subject to climate change because most of it is pretty arid. So, uh, you know, if you have a growing, rapidly growing population and you have uh, areas where food can be grown diminishing, um, you're going to have a, a recipe for a really bad situation. Right. What about existential uh, risks such as, for example, nuclear war, nuclear proliferation, nuclear confrontation? Don't you feel that now with what's been happening, let's say, between Russia and the West in general, I mean, 
I don't remember personally the situation being as bad for maybe since the the collapse of the of the Iron Curtain of of the Berlin Wall. Um, are you not concerned about stuff like that? I am still concerned about uh, the risk of of nuclear war. Um, I think it's. I, I mean, there is certainly some existential risk from that, undoubtedly. If uh, you know Russia and the United States started using a large number of their nuclear weapons, uh, that could be an existential risk. Um, I. I think of it more likely as, uh, you know, a, a small number of nuclear weapons could be used and then there would be a halt rather than total obliteration. But of course, that would itself be disastrous, even if not uh, something that would wipe out our species or life on Earth. So, yeah, I do worry about that. Um, I think there are a number of risks uh, also. I guess there is still risks of um, pandemics, either natural or instigated by terrorists, for example. Um, but, you know, the, the natural risk is, is I think, significant um, because there are, there are viruses around that we have no resistance to that are lethal um, that at the moment are you know, maybe you know, confined to certain regions, but um, there's so much more travel nowadays. There's also, a, again, it relates to uh, intensive agriculture that we, when you have... Uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of animals packed together. It's kind of an ideal reservoir for breeding new viruses that could spread to humans. So um, I think there are, there are risks of that kind that I would see as um, existential risks that we need to think what we can do about to reduce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just watching on the news yesterday that, that they're actually just testing a new vaccine against Ebola. Um, uh, it's a Canadian-made uh, uh, vaccine, and, and they're just uh, actually uh, vaccinating the, the sort of all the medical workers in Africa where we just had a new outbreak of Ebola and a, a nurse just died yesterday. Uh, so that's giving me some, some hope that we're hopefully making progress on things like that. Uh, but going back to effective altruism, which is a big part of your life, I know, uh, uh, let me ask you this, because one of the sort of most kind of uh, <laughs> the objectivists, I, I was going to say one, one of the most powerful, not powerful, but like the objectivist uh, uh, sort of philosophy, if you will, uh, is one of the usual criticism, perhaps to effective altruism. So I wanted to ask you, what's your take on objectivism in general? And would you qualify Ayn Rand as a philosopher even? Yeah, so um, I think it's important when you use this term objectivist to say that you're referring to the philosophy of Ayn Rand because it's a very misleading label. I mean, there are many there are many ethical views uh, which philosophers regard as objectively true, um, and they have nothing to do with Ayn Rand's uh, egoistic philosophy. Um, so I think for for her to take this label objectivist as if somehow that's the only objective philosophy that there is out there is just, you know, like like a used car salesman presenting a, a, a real lemon as a, a wonderful car. It's a good positioning, though. For marketing purposes, it's very smart positioning. <laughs> maybe, maybe for me, yes, exactly. But we ought to be aware of those marketing tricks. Um, so I just don't think that there's, uh, that she's really uh, got good arguments going. I mean, um, Anne Mann seems to think somehow that... Uh, 
if everybody pursues their own interest, that will also be in the best interest of everyone. Um, so she tries to have it both ways, you know, whereas um, I think if everybody pursues their own interests, uh, you know, especially interests narrowly conceived, um, as she as she does, um, that is is going to be very far from being the best for everyone. And I think we see that exactly in the, the situation of climate change, right? In the short term, given that, you know, neither you or I are, are likely to be around by, let's say, 2200, um, then uh, in the short term, we might say, well, you know, I don't care. I'm, I'm going to do whatever I do that has fun, um, use as much uh, fossil fuel as I like, eat as much uh, meat as I like, and contribute to all those greenhouse gas emissions because the worst consequences are going to come either in the distant future after I've gone or they're going to come to the people we we're just talking about living in Niger or somewhere like that. And, you know, why should I care about them? Um, but, uh, you know, if we all do that, then that is going to be disastrous for uh, uh, people generally in, in the long run. And I think that to ignore that uh, is uh, you know, unethical to not not give weight to the interests of others who are going to suffer because of your actions is is ethically wrong. And uh, and as I say, Rand sort of tries to say, no, it'll actually be good for everyone. And so she doesn't really see the need to argue for why, if it comes to a choice between my interests and the interests of many others, um, I should prefer my interests. And I think that's a more difficult argument to make once you recognize that there is this tension or conflict between my interests, at least in some circumstances, um, and the interests of others. Hmm. But they, what about the argument that egoism, egoism is altruism? <laughs> Well, I, I, that's exactly what I'm saying. I, I think that that's just false, right? Um, that would only be true if, if egoism actually helped others. Uh, you know, what, what, the, what is true but is not actually the way that Rand presents it um, is that if you do help others, you're likely to have a better life yourself. That is, there's, there's good psychological evidence that people who are generous and care about others and are connected with others um, are more satisfied with their own lives, find li their lives more fulfilling and rewarding than people who only think about, you know, how much money can I earn or how can I have a newer car or live in a bigger house. Um, those things don't provide any kind of lasting satisfaction. Uh, but that's you know, almost the mirror image of what Rand is, is suggesting because he glorifies people who do um, sort of make a lot of money for themselves and their way to the top of power right and I, I would suggest to our audience that uh, you make a very powerful argument in both uh, your book the life you can save as well as uh, practical ethics uh, and I suggest people check both of those out and, and it's fantastic uh, and I agree with you that uh, basically uh, even if we accept that maybe there is arguably a sort of an optimum strategy in our individual sense, we end up in a global prisoner's dilemma where that personally optimum strategy leads us every time to a suboptimal global equilibrium and the, the current mess that we find ourselves within, whether with respect to climate change or what have you. Um, but let me move away f a little bit from sort of... Uh, that point of view into the idea, which is another criticism that people offer level often level at me, that ethics is totally subjective. That 
there's nothing that could ever be objective about ethics. It's always going to remain subjective and therefore it's useless or besides the point because we're never going to agree upon it. What's your take on that kind of sort of approach or criticism? Is ethics totally subjective? I have two things to say about that. Uh, the first one is that even if it were true that ethics is entirely subjective, it wouldn't follow that we have nothing to say about it because we might still appeal to other people's subjective beliefs. And, uh, for example, if somebody, if I say to somebody, look, uh, you oughtn't to um, eat meat because it comes from factory-farmed animals who suffer a lot, and they say, well, that's your subjective viewpoint, um, you know, I don't really care about that. Um, I, I think I might still be able to say some things to them. I might be able to say, for example, you know, as, as you did earlier, well, you know, what would you say to superior aliens who treated us the way we treat animals? Um, and you know, maybe that will get them to think about whether they really are comfortable with saying it's okay, they don't care about how we treat animals. Or maybe I just show them some video of animals in factory farms and say, look, you, you're really prepared to support this. And maybe they'll then realize that their own subjective feelings actually are against supporting that. So, so it's not true that if ethics is subjective, it's not worth talking about. It still is worth talking about. Um, but the second thing is that um, although there are certainly respectable philosophers who think that ethics is subjective and it's difficult to prove that that's not the case. Uh, I also think that there are good reasons for thinking that um, there are objective, self-evident ethical truths. Um, perhaps the idea that uh, your interests count as much as my interests, you know, if we're sort of similar beings, equally capable of feeling pain or equally capable of enjoying our lives, then um, for me to think that your pains and pleasures don't matter, but my pains and pleasures do, um, uh, seems to be unethical. And I think that's something that maybe we can just grasp as a, a kind of self-evident truth. Uh, you know, we may, we may not actually feel it emotionally and it may not motivate us as it should, but, but just trying to reflect on it and think about, is there really a reason for thinking that your interests don't matter and mine do? Um, I think we can see that there isn't such a reason. Yeah, and you talk a lot about uh, that sort of taking the universe point of view as a starting point rather than sort of egoistic, narrow-minded, selfish, single point of view of me and just me and, and trying to look at the whole perspective from the universe point of view and then or use the veil of ignorance perhaps even as John Rose uh, suggested some time ago as a helpful other tool. Um, we, we touched on transhumanism a little bit, and you said that you're very sympathetic, uh, at least to that degree, that, that you know human nature is imperfect and, and there's nothing wrong with trying to improve on that. Would you mind unpacking that a little bit more for us? What do you know about transhumanism and how far would you go in sort of like going along that idea, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I've... I've um read and uh, thought about some of these issues, um, particularly in the work of some philosophers who are sympathetic to it, people like uh, Nick Bostrom and uh, Julian Savalescu, who are both, both philosophers at Oxford, um, and to talk about uh, enhancement, uh, for instance. Um, Julian has talked about uh, the prospects of moral enhancement of our species um, and uh, of the use of 
you know, various ways of improving our species, both through uh, genetic selection or genetic engineering, um, but also through um, possibly, you know, some taking some some drugs that enable us to think better or perhaps to um, even to to act more with more concern for others. Um, so, I think that those things are worth uh, discussing. I don't shy away from the idea that we might. Uh, improve our species in that way, uh, and as I said, when you when you think about so, how is it that we are uh, as we are? The answer clearly is a an evolutionary one, and um, evolution does not have any kind of benign purposes behind it. It's not the guiding hand of providence or anything like that. Um, it's simply the selection of um, random mutations that are beneficial to the being uh, who survives and reproduces. But um, the traits that we have, that we have developed from our ancestors that were successful for our survival and reproduction are not necessarily desirable traits in the world today. Um, and one example is, is one that we've already been talking about, um, and that's climate change. So we have evolved to have certain moral um, instincts or reactions uh, and if you know, so you see somebody beating up a small child, perhaps your uh, instinctive reaction is to think that that's a bad thing, um, and that's because we've, over millions of years, we've evolved as social primates, and it wasn't good for our group for people to to beat up children, um, or they might be our children. So we have this innate reaction against it. On the other hand, um, it's just as damaging, arguably, in the world today to release greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and in the long run will do more harm than beating up a child. Um, but because this is a new problem, we have not evolved any kind of re reaction or instinctive repugnance to people who uh, release a lot of greenhouse gases. So um, we, look, we look at some uh, multimillionaire who buys a huge uh, yacht, a ship for themselves, which um, will produce more greenhouse gases in an hour than a car will in an entire year. Um, and we don't think, oh, that's terrible. This person is doing something awful. Um, uh, we don't have the kind of repugnance that we would if we saw that person beating up a child. But um, you know, we should. We, we need to have the kinds of reactions that will enable us to solve the problems of the 21st century, not the problems of... 5,000 years ago. So let's take that idea of or possibility about moral enhancement and enhancement in other ways step by step here for a second. I have the argument on my show quite often whether intelligence is a good thing in itself and is it necessarily the case that higher intelligence is likely or guaranteed to be more ethically moral or not? Uh, I would say likely yes, but guaranteed no. Um, and I think I would say likely yes, for the reasons that we were talking about, about ethics, that the more reflective we are, the more we're capable of uh, thinking about our situation. And Is being reflective being intelligent? Because, look, my concern is that, let's take, for example, Einstein's experience uh, in Berlin. He lived with within sort of the, the, the cream of... The, the best science in, scientists in the world of his day, and Berlin was more or less the scientific capi capital of the world. That's my argument anyway, of course. And uh, 
in a very short period of time, he was shocked and dismayed and disgusted how all his colleagues basically became nationalistic to the degree that they were able to switch instantaneously working from their own work to, let's say, producing weapons of mass destruction, like chemical weapons, for example, and did not see that as being unethical in any way possible. And yet those were some of the smartest people of his day. And so my argument follow is that it's not necessarily the case that ethics or doing the right thing morally coincides necessarily with higher intelligence. In fact, sometimes less intelligent people are perhaps arguably more reflective, as you say. Yes, um, that's why I said it's, I, I think there still is a tendency um, for more intelligent people to be able to think more calmly and clearly about ethics rather than being dominated by their uh, instinctive uh, emotional responses. Um, but it is only a tendency. And, you know, I think if you look at the situation of uh, Berlin in the 30s, um, I don't think it was the most intelligent people in Germany who voted for Hitler, um, who put Hitler into power. Um, you know, I'm not saying that nobody who was intelligent voted for Hitler. I'm sure some did. But um, I'm pretty sure that if you'd looked at the levels of education and, and even intelligence uh, among those who voted for Hitler as compared to those who voted for, let's say, the Social Democrats, um, you would not have found that uh, it was in any way the intellectual elite who were voting Even for Hitler. Even some famous philosophers turned out he had very strong Nazi association. Well, Heidegger did, obviously. But, but you know, I think a lot of this happened after the Nazis came to power. Um, and so then you get this very powerful kind of groupthink going on. Um, it's really nicely, if you know the um, Ionesco play, The Rhinoceros, um, it's really nicely satired there about how some completely crazy idea like turning into a rhinoceros um, starts to become attractive when you see other people doing it. Um, and uh, I, think, I think that, you know, he was obviously thinking about the rise of fascism, uh, that it's a kind of a group think once it gets going. And we do have this group tendency. We are herd animals. Again, that's, that's an evolutionary tray that we have and one that I think it would be really nice to, uh, to sort of get rid of if we, if we could. Um, you know, it's okay when you go and cheer for your football team, but it's, it's not good when it leads you to embrace fascism because other people are. So uh, I think that, that that's what's going on there. And yes, unfortunately, this is so powerful that it can overcome the judgment of the most intelligent people. And that's really what Einstein was reflecting on. Um, but as I say, would Hitler have got there in the first place if um, uh, only the better educated, more intelligent people had been voting? I think not. Mm. I don't know. When I watch today things like Brexit and Trump, you know, I don't think it's a division along educational lines or intelligence. I, and I think there are some commonalities. Yeah, I, I don't agree, though. I think, I, you know, if you look at if you look at who voted for Brexit and who voted for Trump, I mean, uh, I think education was a factor. I can't quote you figures, but I think people with, with uh, tertiary education, with degrees, were less likely to vote for Trump and less likely to vote for Brexit. Yes, I accept. I accept that completely. But just, I'm just saying not exclusively, but yes. You oh, absolutely. Not exclusively. It's only a tendency. Yeah. 
Okay, so the other way that transhumanists usually talk about enhancement, which is very important for them, for us, I should say, is uh, life extension. So let me ask you this. Is research aimed at extending human life and hopefully eventually defeating death altogether moral, in your opinion, or not? I think it is. I think it's reasonable to say that um, you know, it's in people's interests and everyone's interests if they can live longer and, and uh, perhaps ultimately if they don't die at all. But um, the qualification is, you know, I did refer to population growth in, in, in some parts of the world. Um, the, the qualification is that we, if, if we're going to be around for much longer, then we do have to solve that problem. We do have to um, make sure that reproduction levels are not so high that um, we have. But I think that's not really a problem, though, because... Because if you look at the longest living countries in the world today, places like Japan, all of them have negative growth uh, population-wise. So it's, it's, it seems to me there's a strong correlation. And, and, and as you pointed out, the, the highest grow, growing countries are cr uh, countries with very high death rates and, and very short lifespans, by the way. Uh, so it seems to me there's a very strong correlation that as soon as you know we get a, a society to the point where they're able to live let's say, to 80, 90, and 100, uh, then the the population growth kind of naturally tapers out. Well, there's a correlation, but I don't think it's causation. I think there's a common factor, yes, um, yes. both in longevity and in uh, lower, lower population growth. Um, so if we were somehow to get the greater longevity without those other factors, maybe that wouldn't happen. But, you know, you may be right that it's, it's likely that they'll come together. And if so, uh, then if that will sort of automatically solve the problem, um, then it would be a, uh, a, a good thing without that possible hazard that I was referring to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very interesting. And going back sort of to the AI question and the technological singularity question, because after all, my show is called Singularity FM. Ray Kurzweil, by the way, and the majority of people think uh, much closer timelines than you have given. Uh, so Ray has gone on the record to say that 2028 will be when machines would match human intelligence and then by 2045, uh, we would have uh, the technological singularity. Uh, sort of the average opinion in, let's say, computer scientists and people in the field with a few polls that I have seen with a couple hundred experts have generally tried started to shift within two or three decades from now. And already even some of them are actually saying that Ray is kind of being conservative given the, the most recent developments that we have observed with, let's say, DeepMind and AlphaGo and things like that. Uh, so... Would you not use that as evidence to perhaps reconsider uh, why Elon Musk and all those other people I mentioned uh, have urgency on their end as much as, let's say, climate change, perhaps? Nick Bostrom, who is another colleague of yours, he is buying that argument, it seems. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I know I've seen these surveys, but um, I've asked people, for example, at Princeton University, the Center for Human Values that I'm involved with, uh, has a kind of joint program with the Center for Information Technology Policy. And we had a workshop last year where we had people from DeepMind as well as from uh, Microsoft and Facebook and um, and Google 
uh, talking about various issues, ethical issues raised by AI. And at some point, you know, I think I said, well, look, um, there's nothing on the program here about uh, the security or about, you know, AI takeover. Um, and why is that? And basically they laughed. They said, we don't see this as anywhere near on the horizon. Um, and, you know, the people from DeepMind were saying, look, you know, yes, winning at AlphaGo is one thing, but it's a very clearly defined uh, game operation with very specific rules. And it's nothing like the kind of intelligence that you would need to actually be able to sort of function in the world in the way that uh, humans do or even in a superior way to that. So I don't know. I'm, as I say, I'm not an expert on this, um, and maybe I should just accept my uncertainty and therefore say, you know, if this is a risk, we should be taking it seriously, um, and maybe it will come faster than I think. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Um, I, I, I accept my my lack of, of real knowledge on this. I'm just reporting what other people have said. Mm -hmm. So, Peter, time is advancing, unfortunately, and we have maybe three or four minutes to wrap our conversation up. So let me just ask you a couple of questions here uh, quickly, perhaps. So my whole kind of presumption or premise of my blog and my work for the last 10 years is the claim that I've put forward to say that technology is not enough, that we need ethics. Then I have people like Lawrence Krauss, who basically I interviewed on my show a couple of months ago, who told me, no, ethics is useless. Uh, there's no ethics in physics today. There's no ethics in cosmology. It's not even needed to be in the committee. There's no use for it. Uh, I get, uh, I have a friend who is an engineer who tells me, you philosophers are all bullshitters because after the end of my day, I have something to show for it. You guys have nothing to show for it at the end of your day. So how do I convince people? What's the approach that I should take to tell people? And am I correct in, at all in putting forward the claim that technology and especially our civilization at the crossroads that it is at right now could really benefit from ethics? Oh, absolutely. I think you're, you're right. Um, and I think, in fact, it's, it's obvious when you stop and think about it. Um, technology doesn't tell us what to do with the discoveries, right? This person may say, so at the end of my day, at the end of the day, I've got something. Let's say I've produced some new technological device that can do something that we couldn't do before. But we still have to ask, well, is it good? Do we want to do something with that, right? What is your device? Is your device something that is going to, you know, um, inflict horrible pain and suffering all over the world? Or is it something that is going to make people happier? Um, and, uh, you know, it's an ethical question that says if it's going to inflict pain and suffering all over the world, we don't want it. Thank you very much. If it's going to make people happier, well, maybe we do want it. Um, the, that's that's ethics. And, and people like Larry Krauss, who I, I know, and it's a bit funny <laughs> that he says that because he's invited me to Arizona to, um, you know, and you can find a conversation we had on, on YouTube. I watched there. it, yeah. Right, yeah. So, um you know, so I think he's really aware of this. And, and what he's really saying is, well, it's kind of obvious that we know that making people happier is good and um, you know, making people suffer is bad. Uh, but it has no direct bearing, he claims, to physics. Uh, well, I mean, it has no direct bearing to understanding the origins of the universe, let's say, to cosmology. OK, that that may be true. You know, I'm not. But but. Um, but even the question, is it worth spending resources on doing cosmology, is an ethical question. Exactly. So, so it's in that sense, cosmology, you know, it, it doesn't help us to understand the origins of the universe, but it, it, cosmology has to be wrapped in a framework of ethics to tell us whether it's worth doing at all or not.
Very much so. I actually wrote an article called Technology is the How, Not the Why or What, which basically argues that kind of argument. Uh, but we really in the last couple of minutes here. So um, one quick audience questions and then two quick ones to wrap it up. Cynthia Stewart is asking, what is the most effective method for individuals advocating local and global veganism? Uh, you know, I think um, try to be reasonable about it. Don't be too hardline. Don't be too fanatical. Don't be too self-righteous. Um, present it as a, a great uh, way to live, as a way that makes you feel good, good in yourself because you know you're not making the world worse, good in terms of exploring different ways of, of eating, good in terms of what it does to your body. Um, take a positive view of it, I think, is the best way to present it, to persuade people to. And, and I would have to say, after watching probably 12 or 15 hours of your uh, speeches and presentations, one thing that comes across very clearly is how you can be so good at not coming across as preachy in any way, but humble and, and very kind of open-minded. And that's, I think, amazing, and it works very well with people, because just a couple of years ago, I was on the other side. And uh -huh. you were... Good. You were one of the people who, by the way, tipped me uh, over into the sort of the whole vegan thing. And it's been the best thing I've ever done for myself, for the climate and for the animals, I think, personally That's speaking. So I'm grateful to you for that. But where can people find more about you and your work? Uh, well, I have a website called petersinger.info um, that has some information. Um, Part of my work, as I said, is related to um, extreme poverty, and I've uh, founded an organization called The Life You Can Save that is uh, about that. So you can go to thelifeyoucansave.org uh, and find out more about that there. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of books you can find on my website, on petersinger.info. You can find my CV, which, which has a lot of books. So you've mentioned some of them. Um, the Life You Can Save is one. The Most Good You Can Do is another. Animal liberation is another part. And, Animal Liberation is, you know, I think the first really important book that I wrote uh, um, and fortunately has been in print ever since it was first published and, and revised editions. So I hope people will pick up that. I've just written a very short introduction to utilitarianism together with a, a Polish colleague. Um, so it's called Utilitarianism, a very short introduction uh, in the Oxford University Press series. Um, so if you want to know more about my underlying philosophical outlook, that's a good place to pick up too. Yeah, and, and I would have to say I, I really recommend uh, your practical ethics because I think they are really practical. That's the key word. Because people, when I talk to people, they think ethics is this thing that's useless for them. And my argument is always it's ethics done proper is the most practical thing you can have. It's think that you can start applying today in your daily life right now and it can change it for the better tremendously. Uh, but Peter, we've been talking for about 60 minutes today. So if, we're, if, you, if I were to ask you to wrap up our conversation in a single most important message that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this uh, conversation with you today, what would you like that to be? Well, let's go back to Socrates since uh, that's the, the, the name you used, right? I mean, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. What we've been doing is uh, trying to ex examine our lives and try encourage others to examine their lives and to think about the ultimate values that they want to live by. Peter Singer, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. It's been great talking to you.
you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 